We ready? Okay. Uh, it's a pleasure tonight to um, introduce uh, Professor Charlie Falco, uh, Professor of Optical Science uh, and Chair in Condensed Matter at the University of Arizona, um, to give the second Venexum lecture, second of his Venexum lectures. Last night, he talked about his work with uh, David Hockney on uh, the use of optical instruments in Renaissance art. Um, and this evening, he's going to tell us something about motorcycles. Um, Charlie is a uh, condensed matter physicist of some repute. He's published 250-odd uh, articles in scientific journals and given hundreds of talks. He's a winner of the um, Humboldt Fellowship, Humboldt Award for Distinguished U.S. Scientist. Um, he shared an award um, from the International Association of Art Critics with uh, Frank Geary and uh, the director of the Guggenheim for the work that he's going to talk about today. I've known Charlie uh, for a long time. We were on sabbatical together in Paris um, in 1979. And at the time, he dragged his wife, my wife, me, all over Paris in search for the oldest motorcycle, which he claimed was uh, in one of the museums. In particular, we spent several days at Musée um, des Arts Métiers. And uh, he didn't find it then. But uh, in 1998, um, the Guggenheim Museum in New York decided to put on uh, an exhibit on motorcycles. And although Charlie has uh, some motorcycles and has been riding, since he was riding motorcycles since he was 15 years old, he doesn't have the most extensive collection of motorcycles, but rather the most extensive collection of motorcycle books. And so they called on him to help organize this exhibit. Um, it was the most well-attended exhibit ever in the history of the Guggenheim in New York, then moved on to Bilbao, and I think presently is in the Guggenheim in Las Vegas, where you can see it. Charlie? Thank you. Well, so far the technology is letting us down. But it works. So what I'm going to do tonight is, in honor of being at such a prestigious university, and the lecture series, um, I read something on the, the web page saying that this lecture series somehow is supposed to convey aspects of technology and society together. I'm giving the most technologically advanced talk I've ever given on the art of the motorcycle. So it's fair warning. There's just going to be differential equations and all sorts of things throughout this talk. Um, or not. The talk, how many of you came last night? Oh, many of you. This is going to be a very different talk than last night's talk. Last night's talk, I talked about work I've been doing with the artist David Hockney and um, on Renaissance art. I'm going to be talking about the 20th century largely today. And as um, Paul Chaikin introduced me, that I've been involved with the Guggenheim, and uh, normally I never acknowledge Alton Guilfoyle um, for anything whatsoever, except he took the train down here from New York, so I, I had to la desperately throw in this slide at the last second. So um, generally what I'm going to talk about tonight is I'm going to give you kind of a brief introduction. I'm going to talk about the 
the general thematic principles around the art of the motorcycle, the exhibition at the Guggenheim, and I'll ask another question. How many went to one variation or another of the art of the motorcycle at the Guggenheim? Fair number. Okay. Um, it opened in New York in 98, moved to Bilbao in Spain. It's now in Las Vegas. Two million people have seen it to date. And um, so uh, there's a lot of um, intellectual content in that that exhibition, all of which is due to me, I should say, none of which is uh, Alton Guilfoyle. And I'm going to talk about some of the intellectual content. And since I'm supposed to talk a little bit about technology, and there's a lot of technology, as you will see, in motorcycles, I'm going to show you that technology is not the only part of the story. So we have to talk about culture and how the technology fits into culture. And you'll see that a motorcycle is a very nice way to see how technology and culture goes together. And People don't necessarily want the latest and highest in technology. So we'll go through this kind of around the theme of the art of the motorcycle. But the genesis of this was the director of the Guggenheim, Thomas Krenz, some years ago, was thinking, well, the, we're coming to the end of the 20th century at the time, the end of the millennium. What kind of exhibition could he put on at the Guggenheim that could convey the significant themes of the millennium, of the 20th century or whatever? Think about significant themes of the 20th century. Technology, design, mobility, adventure, sex is a theme of any century. So could you tell the story with motorcycles as a design exhibition? And you can see that the major themes you certainly can tell with the aid of motorcycles. This is the coolest guy ever. As a physicist, I wish I were one-tenth that cool. And one mustn't forget that there is a risk associated. This is not a stuntman. Evil Knievel spent many months in the hospital in a coma recovering from that accident. This is the sort of thing I noticed when I look back, I saw some mo real motorcyclists, guys who ride motorcycles. When you see this, you just can't help but just, you get this look on your face like, oh my God. And you don't look, on, it's not a look on your face like you're watching a movie because you know this guy went through this. So. We can tell many of the major themes of the 20th centuries with motorcycles. Thomas Krenz recognized that. His problem was, who is going to choose select the motorcycles? So at that point, he asked his director of his filmmaking department, Alton Guilfoyle, who asked me, and we got together. And together, um, I characterize this as a right-brain, left-brain adventure that um, one of us approached it incredibly logically and consistently and thoroughly. And I can approached it, though, just sort of from a very artistic perspective. And together we selected all the motorcycles in the exhibition. Another thing, a point I should make is, even though he's a filmmaker, I'm a physicist, we never disagreed on any motorcycle to the extent where we came, okay, I won't object to you putting this ugly motorcycle in if you let me put this one in. We agreed, we talked about some of them a lot before we came to a conclusion, but we never disagreed. No, there were no compromises made. And I think the fact two million people saw it and liked it um, speaks to the, um, how well that, that particular way of approaching this thing worked. So there we are, filmmaker, intelligent, highly articulate physicist.
And so, if you saw it in New York, you know that Frank Gehry transformed the inside of the, the Guggenheim. The walls are lined with polished steel, highly polished steel, um, almost chrome-plated in look, and even brought the, the museum alive, um, studying the optical properties of the museum. I'm an optical physicist. There is in there, well, there is a neon sign that says the art of the motorcycle. That neon sign is reflected through these concave surfaces many times to the point where if you felt a very subtle pressure change in the museum, like the doors opening, the walls, the, the stainless steel cladding that Frank Gehry applied to this were not up against the wall. They were held a little ways away. They would flex ever so slightly, and you could watch the reflections of that art of the motorcycle change and breathe with the building. It was quite marvelous. And then, well, here, Dalton, this is, um, it's not unusual for someone who works for the Guggenheim, I suppose, to win a um, design award with Frank Gehry, the world-famous architect who spoke here in, I think, the same lecture series a few months ago. Um, but physicists, that's more unusual. It's now in Las Vegas. When the exhibition moved from New York to Frank Gehry's Bilbao, Frank Gehry again did the installation, and I saw that, I thought, nothing could top it. He, he significantly raised the bar of the installation design when it was in Bilbao. He raised it again when it went to Las Vegas. And so this gigantic Guggenheim Las Vegas, one of the best kept secrets in the country, that there is such a magnificent museum designed by Rem Koolhaas there, in a second museum, the Guggenheim Hermitage, now has this installation installed with, um, and we've made some changes. When the exhibition moved from New York to Spain, Alton and I changed it by about 20%. The bikes we chose were slanted more for a European audience. Now we're back in America, in the West, and we decided to put some more American themes into this. And it'll be, and I'll talk today, for tonight, about many of the themes from the point of view of America's take on motorcycling, which isn't necessarily the world's take, although I'll make contact with what the rest of the world does with motorcycles. Some technology. So, Alton, sorry about this. This is differential equations now. Uh, prior to about 30 years ago, when design became much more international, that if you had shown these photographs without the captions to some industrial designer who had never seen a motorcycle before, the designer would be able to recognize and say, oh, that's clearly a French motorcycle. That's clearly Japanese design, German, Italian. It's become much more international since then. However, in contrast to design, technology's always been universal, has been international. That, uh, I'm sure some people in here ride Harley-Davidson's, and Harley-Davidson is not notorious or famous, depends on how you want to look at it, for the V-twin engine. But this is the first Harley-Davidson V-twin engine. We had that in the, the Guggenheim. But the first V-twin engine, well, we can't decide. They both appeared in the summer of 1903, whether it was the Griffin in France or the Lorraine and Clement in a country that doesn't even exist anymore, the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the current Czech Republic. Uh, significantly before the Harley-Davidson. 
Designers are well aware of the latest in technology, and they took it over very quickly for the, the technological aspects. So one way, being a, a condensed matter physicist or a solid-state physicist, that I can tell the story of the motorcycle is I can tell it as the story of the evolution of materials uh, development of the 20th century. A motor, there's sort of a general principle of industrial production that for similar kinds of objects, a bicycle, a motorcycle, an automobile, the price to, to mass produce the object is simply a certain number of dollars per pound. Motorcycles weigh 400 pounds. If a car weighs 4,000 pounds, it costs one-tenth as much to produce the motorcycle. What this means is that motorcycle designers have always been free to incorporate higher tech materials, more expensive materials to give the, the highest performance when they wanted to in a uh, motorcycle they couldn't afford to do in cars except for all but the richest people. We can watch the evolution. When seamless tubing is developed, immediately motorcycle designers take it on. Wars are always great for design, for materials development, because a lot of money goes into production. World War II, prior to World War II, I call this, I put this in materials technology, but it's a process. Tungsten inert gas welding you need in order to join aluminum together. Aluminum forms a very thick oxide. You can't weld it conventionally because of that oxide. You need to bathe the aluminum joint with an inert gas, like um, helium, sometimes this is called heliarc welding or, or argon, to blow away the oxide, just not to let oxygen form an oxide in order to weld. Prior to World War II, you couldn't do that. You, if you wanted to join two pieces of aluminum, you had to bolt them together. We've got a great example I won't show tonight of a, a wonderful design in France prior to the war that was limited in design because it didn't have the welding technology. Up until today, we're, we have miraging steels, um, ABS plastics, carbon uh, fiber. The latest materials can be used in motorcycles. Here's a picture I took at the Laguna Seca Raceway this last summer. You can see, you know, high-tech. Money is no object with racing. Downloading the latest um, data from the, the last run this, this motorcycle took of suspension, compression, and expansion, what the engine was doing at different points on the circuit. So um, we can use the latest technology. So we, we love technology. We are a high-tech university. Technology is great. Here are two motorcycles that, in fact, have the same kind of engine design. They're both V-twin engines. They cost essentially the same, about $16,000. The one on the right, though, has twice the horsepower of the one on the left, and it's one-third less weight. So its power-to-weight ratio is much higher, which is a good thing. It, its handling is better. It goes at a higher speed. So clearly, from a technological point of view, you have no choice which of these two motorcycles to buy. You buy this one. You buy this one at a rate of 30 to 1 in America over this one, which tells you a very important lesson. Technology is not the only issue. And we will come through this as I go through this. And, and I'm not cheating you on these technological issues. That technology is not the only issue. You have to understand cultural aspects and many other aspects of, of how an object is used in society if you want to, to be successful in selling objects. Nice picture from a recent New York Times. And I have other pictures that are like this. Uh, Afghanistan has been 
just bomb back past the Stone Age. The very first signs of technology you see, I have pictures in Vietnam, of here in Afghanistan, of transportation. It's provided by motorcycles. The least expensive transportation, and you need transportation until before you have a vehicle in your in some society, you never go more than two or three miles from home. You, it's as far as you can walk in a day and walk back. That's your whole world. As soon as you get some vehicle, your world becomes much, much bigger. You can travel 100 miles away from home and 100 miles back. Motorcycles are much less expensive than automobiles. So if you're designing a motorcycle for a highly, um, a very wealthy Western country, the kinds of criteria that go into your selection are obviously you want the highest possible horsepower, excellent high-speed handling, anti-lock brakes, why not? Money is no object, essentially. And you put these all together. So therefore, you use high silicon content aluminum pistons, which is a, it's a technologically difficult process to create these. The higher the silicon content, which is hard to get silicon into aluminum, the binary phase diagram says they don't really want to go together, costs more money to force it in, but it gives you a low, much lower coefficient of expansion. Therefore, you can make the tolerances tighter and lose less power and make it run faster. And titanium valves and connecting rods. Whereas, if you're designing a motorcycle for a country, transportation for Afghanistan or India, where money really is an object, well, the criteria is operate with low-octane fuels. Inexpensive construction cost the initial purchase price actually can be more important than the operating cost. So you have to use low-tech um, low materials like cast iron cylinders, gravity tests, aluminum. Different technologies, and here's, I found a Princeton connection. Freeman Dyson was commenting that technologies that raise the fewest ethical problems are those that work on a human scale. You can imagine that that person writing in Afghanistan, there is no ethical problem of him polluting a little bit more. That's, that's a problem that we worry about in highly developed countries where we need to worry about it. In a uh, country that there is no transportation, the ethical problem is, do I get food or not? Not, is, am I polluting a little bit? And so in Freeman Dyson's case, he talked about how his father was given freedom and mobility by a motorcycle. And you can see that in that case of that, that person in Afghanistan, not equating England 100 years ago with Afghanistan, but maybe England 50 years ago. So what selection criteria did Alton and I use to choose the motorcycles in the Guggenheim? And it, we boiled it down to three criteria, and I'm showing you examples that sort of are at the far end of the spectrum in each of those criteria. This MV Augusta uses... Um, the latest in technology, magnesium swing arms, cost is no object whatsoever in designing. This is an absolutely gorgeous motorcycle. There is no reason on earth that motorcycle needs to exist for any practical reason. It's not for commuting down the store to buy your groceries or anything. It exists because it's a beautiful object and we can afford such things. The Honda 50, more than 25 million of these are made, more than any other motor vehicle ever made on this planet. This is, provides and still provides, those of you who have been to um, uh, the Far East, you see these, these or versions made by Yamaha or Suzuki all over uh, countries that have a lower development than the Western Europe or America. 
It pro- so it provides transportation for for the masses. It's there for that reason, although it's not a ugly machine. It is very practical, a very nice design of, uh, example of industrial design. And somewhere in the middle, we'll have historical or technological per, um, importance. This is the world's first mass-produced motorcycle. So we choose it for this. But there are very few motorcycles that actually fit so neatly into one of these criteria. So in fact, Alton and I, we just picked what we liked. This is the machine that I dragged Paul Chaikin and his poor suffering wife all around, and my poor suffering wife, <laughs> um, all around Paris looking for. And we finally found it some years later. It was at the Musée de Sceaux um, in the southern suburb of Paris. And it's the world's first motorcycle. Um, it's not a reproduction of the first motorcycle. It's not one of five. It is the first motorcycle ever made. And the miracle is it survived the Franco-Prussian War without being melted down to make cannonballs. It survived World War I. It survived World War II. And we got it for the Guggenheim. And so this, is, this motorcycle makes me happiest um, because we were able to locate it and borrow it. But notice, it's steam-powered. And there's a technological lesson here, too. After several hundred years of development of the steam engine from um, what various people worked on, on the steam engine, Newcomen making it first to pump out the water in the Stannery mines in Cornwall, making it smaller and smaller. Finally, it's small enough to attach to a production bicycle to make transportation possible. What the um, poor guy who made this, um, he doesn't have the excuse that he couldn't read the literature in the, the native language. A fellow French countryman, six years earlier, Alphonse Baudiroque, had published the theoretical principle, which shows us we need to read theoretical papers also, of the four-cycle internal combustion engine. The moment this was invented, it was obsolete. After 200 years of development, there are other examples like this. Um, some of us, like uh, Paul Chaikin and I, are old enough to remember when we went through school with slide rules. And when the first electronic, I, I hate to admit this, but it's true, and when the first electronic calculators came out, it not only put out of business the, the need for slide rules, I mean, it put out of business the need for, um, for um, like automatic calculating machines also that Leibniz and others had worked on. So techno- I, it pays to pay attention to other technologies that can come out there and put you out of business. But this is here because it's the first one. And think about this. This brave gentleman, those of you who ride motorcycles go, oh, today I went 100 miles an hour. I'm a brave guy. This guy is sitting on a high-pressure steam boiler held together with 19th century iron rivets. <laughs> and he's going down cobblestone roads with iron tires. So don't tell me you're so brave you went 100 miles an hour. Because in America, we see um, branding come in. This Never on a video projector does it do justice to the, the burnt umber color of this. Although this doesn't do so badly. This is a beautiful looking motorcycle. The logo, the Flying Merkel logo, someone realized Halley's Comet just came through the year this motorcycle came out. What better way to convey the feeling of speed than use Halley's Comet? And so the Flying Merkel had this in there. Now, something the motorcycles, 90% approximately of motorcyclists are males. And 
motorcycle designers, motorcycle salespeople recognize this. I'm not having any luck. There we are. Motorcycle designers recognize this, and they appeal to the male market because that's most of their customers. What do most males think about? They think about riding up on the latest sport bike, the pretty young lady spotting them and saying, oh, sir, would you give me a ride on your motorcycle? And this is our, you know, everybody's fantasy. And then riding off into the sunset. Sales are made often for fantasies, not for reality. And so you have to understand this to understand many of the designs also. Oops, didn't mean to do that. Oh, we're in trouble. There we go. In America, America, as we'll see, is a big country, wide roads. The first motorcycles were a single cylinder. The easiest way to almost double your power with not a doubling, uh, doubling the cost is you can reuse all the components down here, keep that cylinder, add another cylinder. Where are you going to put the other cylinder? The V of the bicycle frame tells you where you're going to put the other cylinder. So that's where the V-twin comes from. And we have now more power because we always want more power. Now, this is an interesting one. This is a Euro, uh, an American motorcycle with its typical American seating position, feet forward, sitting upright. This is a typical contemporary uh, European motorcycle style. Now, why is this? I mean, they, and so, to some extent, this continues to today. Well, it comes very directly from the fact that this is how probably the motorcycle designer who designed this motorcycle got to work that morning because in 1913 there weren't that many motor vehicles. And in America, you have people riding slowly along vast distances out in the plains of Kansas, whereas the reason why I have this English in quotes is I have a French physicist friend who um, is a horse rider, and he gets so incensed if I say it's English riding, which is how we refer to it in America. So no, no, this is this is the regular saddle. That's a Western saddle. So that's why I call it a European English saddle. So if there are any French people in the audience, I understand it's not an English saddle, except in America. And the reason for this is when you are doing English-style riding or hunter-jumper cross-country riding, you need your feet under your center of gravity. You come across rocks. You come across um, uh, hedges you need to jump. You need to be able to move, maneuver. Here, if this person, who happens to be a famous person, Bud Eakins, pushes down with his feet, he just pushes him back off the saddle. It's not meant for maneuverability. Great for comfort. This is the you know, lounger kind of style, sitting in front of TV, drinking a beer and watching TV. This is comfort for this. This is for maneuverability. And the reason is, I gave this talk at Minnesota a couple years ago, and this is why I have Minnesota, Minneapolis on there. There's a very large motorcycle rally held every year in Sturgis, South Dakota. If you lived in Minneapolis and somebody asked you directions to get to Sturgis, what you would tell them is, sure, get on this road, go directly west, not deviating by more than 15 miles from directly west, 520 miles, and turn left. To the same scale, in Europe, you go from almost the Atlantic Ocean in Belgium almost to Slovakia. So you, and no road in Europe is, you can go more than 30 feet without having to turn. You need the maneuverability. Very different riding styles, 
very different saddles that are required. Another aspect about American motorcycling, which differs from many other places in the world, here, just before World War I, the most expensive Indian, very large, equivalent to a large Harley-Davidson today motorcycle, sold for $325. Less than half the price you could buy a car for. So there's economic reasons to buy a motorcycle, not an automobile. However, a little over a decade later, the situation is completely different. Now, the motorcycle is even more expensive than a car. There's no reason anymore to economically to own a motorcycle. Um, as you know, in New Jersey, it snows, it rains. There's all sorts of reasons you want a car, not a motorcycle. So if you own a motorcycle in New Jersey, automatically you have some aberrant personality, of course, because you're not doing things that are logical. When we don't do things that are logical, that's we ride motorcycles. There are other reasons why we ride motorcycles. People, um, at talks like this will often say, well, people have motorcycles because they're inexpensive transportation. Not in America. That's not the reason at all. This, I took this movie clip out of a very famous movie, The Grapes of Wrath, made in 1940, less than 10 years after the events it's fictionally depicting took place. So it's contemporary with what went on. And to remind you of the storyline, these people have lost everything. They've, been, they've lost their farm in Oklahoma, and they're going to California. And this is what the mother is saying as they're heading off down the road. They've lost everything in life. You can't be poorer than that. But they're driving to California in a, a, a automobile or a truck, not motorcycles. So motorcycles aren't inexpensive transportation. They would be going on motorcycles. Motorcycles provide some other benefit to society other than inexpensive transportation. So now back to the art of the motorcycle. One era that I particularly like is uh, because it... it, it typifies form follows function more than anything else, is board track racing. People made, if you want to go fast, you take a track and you minimize the friction. You make the friction minimum like the floors in this hall. And I'll show you more examples in a second as soon as the clip's over. This was a very popular sport in America just before and just after World War I. So you can see these on board tracks. What do you need to go fast? Well, you need minimum friction. That's the board track. You, what you don't need, you don't need brakes because you want to go fast. You don't want to stop. You don't need a muffler because that only reduces the horsepower. You don't need suspension because the track is smooth. Everything that, other than the color that, that detracts in any way from performance has been taken off. And so these machines really do represent an ultimate of fulfilling a goal of getting around a frictionless or nearly frictionless track as fast as possible. And that's why I like it. And we had, Alton and I picked, um, I think we had three board track racers, because he liked it also. So that's why we had these in there. And there's 
high-tech features like overhead cams and things that, that often people think of as happening only very recently. And it happened much earlier. Two significant design themes in the 20th century, in quite different in some ways, were Bauhaus and Art Deco. Bauhaus came out of Germany, and it was form follows function that characterized by very high quality materials, pleasing designs, but designs that were meant to be very functional. That's a very functional, nice looking teapot. Art Deco, more for the design. Imagine picking up this teapot. Your hand will get wedged up here, up against the hot tea, and it'll hurt. But who cares? It looks beautiful. That's why you have that. So they, two different kinds of design themes, and we see these themes in motorcycles. This is a Bauhaus kind of motorcycle. Design is the first BMW. It doesn't look like a designer bought an engine, stuck it in a frame, put it all together. This gives the impression, and rightfully so, that it was all put together um, by thinking about the process from the start and designing something from the start to be a functional whole. Another important point is the BMW logo represents spinning propellers because BMW during World War I made aircraft and they were forbidden after the um, war to make aircraft, but we have aircraft designers designing motorcycles. There's a lot to be um, learned from this because with an aircraft, what you want, light weight is essential. The, the more weight you take off, the higher performance you have, especially in a military aircraft. And if you can find components where one component can do the job of two, that's clearly better. The idea is to save materials because you get higher performance, not necessarily to save money. And here's a teapot. Marianne Brandt was the head of the, the Bauhaus's metalworking de department for several years. Her teapot, you can see the same lines, same use of high-quality materials, beautiful curves in the teapot as the motorcycle. Another motorcycle, a contemporary of the BMW, was a Mogola. Sweeping Art Deco-like curves, clearly not a Bauhaus design, beautiful colors. But what on earth is this? It's an engine. Where would the designer get the idea to put a rotary engine in a motorcycle? This is Baron von Richthofen's radial engine. And I won't go into the details of the difference between radial and rotary, except the shape is the same. So what we will see as we go through this, the best designers, it's not one motorcycle designer copying the designs of another motorcycle designer. It's the best designers were looking into outside their own areas, into aircraft design or furniture design or whatever, and taking in the best ideas from everywhere to make the designs. People that just copied others, they just were not very interesting. Twenty-some years later, thirty-some years later, Indian in America, a little bit late, we're, we're a little writing the final um, bit of the Art Deco curve, most of the world had given up Art Deco about the time of World War II. This is from about 1950. Same Art Deco shapes. And if I showed you this next to the Magola, you'd be stunned by how remarkably similar they are. But I would say there's no reason to even assume the designer of this Indian in America ever 
copy to Mogola. If you were going to design an Art Deco motorcycle, it would look like this, it would look like the Mogola. One doesn't have to copy the other. So a question people often ask me is, what's my favorite motorcycle in the exhibition? I said, well, you know, we picked them all, so I love them all. Yeah, but what's your favorite one? Based on the fact that every time I walked by this French motorcycle, I broke into a smile. This has to be my favorite one. And it's a Majestic. It came out badly timed. It came out about 1930. Um, he didn't take into account the Depression starting. And so not many of them were made. But it's also has a, a lot of um, technologically advanced features, hub center steering and, so, and shaft drive. Here's a Crocker from just before World War II. Those of you who um, kind of follow, will follow the hijinks of the Hells Angels and the latest thing that happened in Nevada, if you saw photographs of uh, people riding motorcycles currently, the motorcycles look like this. This is, if you rode down the street on this motorcycle, it wouldn't look out of place. It looks like sort of modern Harley-Davidson motorcycles. This is 1940. This is 60 years ago. So that design has stayed with us for a long time. Classic American cruiser. And it's designed feet forward for America. This is John Wayne riding off into the sunset. This is American motorcycling. We come up to World War II. The GIs are coming back from a very traumatic experience. They, they haven't been on CNN all the time. We haven't been watching. We have no sympathy whatsoever for what they went through. Um, and so it's not unusual. They come back and, and motorcyclists, former servicemen, want to stay together because they've shared the same traumatic experience. They buy motorcycles. You can buy, this is a uh, Indian. Many motorcycles were war surplus. They could buy them relatively inexpensively. And now you want to start customizing them to look like yourself. Take off the front fender, makes it look lighter weight. You start bobbing the rear fender. Paint bomber art on the tank. I learned something as a result of this exhibition I never knew before. The American Air Force is the only, world, only um, Air Force in the world that ever allowed people to customize their airplanes. Soldier, and it makes sense. You can imagine um, uh, you know, a German soldier being allowed to customize his, his airplane. I don't think so. Americans were allowed to. And this gets reflected back now. We have bomber art on airplanes. The, Ameri the machine is becoming much more customized. And this, as we will see later, this is a start of a, a homebrew design movement that led to an ultimate motorcycle that I'll show you in a little while. This is the first of something. But then something else happened in America. Based on an inaccurate magazine description, Life magazine, of a small-scale event in Hollister, California, 1947, a short story appeared in Harper's Magazine three years later, leading to a screenplay that led to this movie three years later, which changed the reputation of motorcyclists forever, or at least for the next 20 years. From I can show you any number of examples prior to World War II where the popular press treated motorcycles you know, very favorably. People out for a good time, doing hill climbs, touring the country, 
after the war, motorcycles took on this very negative image. Now, how could one film cause such a negative image? The fact is, it wasn't just the film taken in isolation. Again, understanding design, you have to understand the whole picture. This is America right after World War II. The Soviets tested their first atomic weapon, and our CIA or OSS, whoever was in, the name was at the time, had not prepared the American public for this. They had not been aware the Soviets were going to, to blow this up. Had they been, you know, presumably the, the president could have said, you know, we can expect this and it's no big deal. We've got ten of them and they only have one. This came suddenly. So this is very frightening. North Korea invades South Korea. Senator McCarthy is finding communists under everybody's bed. We execute the Rosenbergs. These were very scary times. So under those circumstances, not only do we have gangs of motorcyclists, you know, young people out of control. Just like today, you go to some shopping mall, you see some kids with purple hair, and you go, oh my God, kids with purple hair. And you think about it for a second, wait a minute, that's you know, my neighbor's kid. That's just, it's just kids trying to behave differently, not necessarily do any kinds of damage, but causes fright. This is young men on motorcycles taking over a small town. This is alien pods from outer space taking over the world. Same theme. These are giant ants created by nuclear testing, which we scares us, that invade Los Angeles. And by the way, a geographic note, these were created in Alamogordo, New Mexico by the atomic testing, and they invaded Los Angeles. If you look at your map, they had to go through Tucson. And so I've asked many people, you know, like, did you see them come through? And my conclusion is, they went through at night. So. That's the only scientifically plausible conclusion for how those ants got to Los Angeles. Now, since motorcycles are such a part of popular culture, um, prior to the exhibition moving to Las Vegas, there was no film program. So for Las Vegas, Alton and assistant Hope Hall put together a film program to just kind of show how the dynamic range and how motorcycle design was influenced by popular culture. So don't underestimate popular culture. Um, a slide I won't show, I'll just tell you the data that if you go to a large magazine stand, like a say the largest Barnes & Noble magazine stand, you'll find roughly 1,200 magazines. How many magazines do you think have anything to do with science or technology? Biological sciences, astronomy, all science and technology. Well, I'll tell you the answer. It's 11. Your magazine store may have 10 or 12. How many have to do with motorcycles? 19. Now, I love motorcycles. Should there be twice as many motorcycle magazines, in a, or not should there be, what does it say about a society where there are twice as many motorcycle magazines than there are magazines dealing with all aspects of science and technology? So you have to understand popular culture to understand these kinds of, of uh, how technology affects people and affects designs. Here's a beautiful little post-war motorcycle, made in Germany right after World War II. Imagine yourself, you're a motorcycle designer, you're in Germany, your country has been 
devastated by Allied bombing. There are no materials or no anything. And your job is to design transportation, like we saw for that person in Afghanistan, transportation for the masses. Well, minimizing materials is very important because there are no materials. It's not minimizing materials for performance, but minimizing it for cost because it costs a certain number of dollars per pound. There's a single-sided swing arm that's made out of the exhaust pipe. The exhaust pipe serves double duty, just like it does, just like good aircraft design tells you, use one component to do more than one thing. High-tech cantilever suspension because the roads are rough. A single-sided front swing arm. Now, where would the, the designer recognize that by making it is single-sided with one arm, but making it fatter than you would have on a regular conventional fork, you use more material on the right-hand side there, but overall less material than it would have taken to do two. You've saved material. Where would you have gotten that idea? This is the landing strut of the most heavily used fighter aircraft in by the, the Nazis in World War II, the Messerschmitt. So it, obviously, if Willie Messerschmitt thought he needed a double-sided fork to, to support the load, it would have put that on there. Saves weight for the same reason it's here. The designer of the motorcycle is looking outside of the design of, of his own industry to try to pick uh, design elements that he can incorporate and make the performance better. We're moving up in time. We come to this beautiful Italian motorcycle with this gorgeous called Jolly Mold gas tank. It's just wonderful curves, evocative curves, evocative of the female form because the designer recognized 90% of motorcycle riders are male. We need to appeal to the male um, psyche to sell these machines. In contrast, here's a Japanese machine. Very square shape, unesthetic to the western eye shape. Now, these machines first came to America in the very late 50s, early 60s, and they looked ugly. And the only reason why we bought them was they performed better, went faster, were less expensive, in every way were superior to anything else that we had available. So only for those reasons did we buy them, not because they looked better. Why would Mr. Honda sell a machine with this ugly, ugly to the Western eye shape? I gave a tour of the museum to the chief designer for Yamaha, Atsushi Ishiyama. I asked him this question, and he said, the reason why he designed the shape this way is that to the Japanese eye, that shape evokes the qualities of the temple, of reliability, security, the kinds of things you want a customer to look at this and, and go, oh, yeah, I want to buy the machine for those reasons. And then he kept the design when it came to America. Along with a machine like this, as I said, more than 25 million copies of this have sold around the world. It, many people um, of my generation had tell stories that their mother said, no, kid, you cannot have a motorcycle. You can have a Honda, but you can't have a motorcycle. And so my first machine was a different variation of this Honda 50. And funny thing, look at the gender neutral ad from 1963. There's the same number of men as women, the same number of boys as girls, a woman in front riding with a girl in back, 
a woman alone, a man in front, boy in back. It's gender-neutral ad from 40 years ago. Honda's always been ahead of the curve on many things. Well, that shape of that square-shaped Honda gas tank that we found so ugly at the beginning of the 60s had grown on us by the end of the 60s to the point where the British, this is a British brand, decided we'll sell one of these machines. What they hadn't realized were that by the end of the 60s, people that were still buying British motorcycles were buying them because they didn't look Japanese. So this was a, a terrible failure. And a few years later, this went bankrupt, this company. This machine is um, another Honda that's given by some people, um, I think, inaccurate credit or blame for killing the British motorcycle industry. The British industry was basically committed suicide, and this cannot be blamed for killing it. This came out with a four-cylinder reliable engine with um, five-speed gearbox disc brakes, so it stopped for the first time. Those of you who own British motorcycles, the idea, I mean, sometimes pulling in the clutch and pulling in the brake have equal effect on slowing you down. Um, and I say this loving British motorcycles. And so, meanwhile, after the easy, after the um, wild one, something else comes along 20 years later that changes our perception. Now a motorcycle doesn't represent a gang of, of hardened youth coming to take over your town. Now a motorcycle represents freedom. I mean, sure, the cocaine sale, all the money from it is, is in the gas tank, but that's, that's an irrelevant point. They're just off to cause no one any harm to travel across America seeking freedom. And this is the machine, it turns out a reproduction of the machine that was used in there. And Remember back to I showed you that first bob job after the war, that Indian with the, with the bomber nose art. This is the, that was the start of a trend. This is the logical evolution, the evolutionary dead end of that. There's, you can't extend those forks anymore. There's nothing left to chrome that isn't already chrome. This is as far as this can go. And this is then the ultimate um, of that the, the folk art of a, of a chopper. Oh, should have, I can't go backwards with this. Um, re, I should go backwards with this. I meant to point out to you the, the lean, clean front end of these forks. If I go back one more, oops, two more. Very practical front end on this, and also on the previous British bike. These um, this piece of rubber protects the seals and the forks from being abraded. It's a very practical thing. It doesn't look that, that nice. This is much leaner and cleaner. This takes over the design in a production motorcycle, again British, but designed by an American designer in Rantoul, Illinois, couldn't be more American than that, Craig Vetter, who was given the task of redesign that frumpy, um, BSA motorcycle that I said led to the destruction made something that looks incredibly different, but in fact is the same motorcycle in essence. Kicked out the front end, lean and clean, not as practical, the fork seals will wear out, but um, it's like if you talk to some kid who's wearing you know fashionable clothes, and you say, well that's not very practical, but range your clothes are not very practically made. He'll look like at you like you're an idiot. They're, they're supposed to look good, 
you know, practicality is just not a design criteria that affects the kit. Here, practicality is not an essential part. But what we've done now with Easy Writer, and not arguing over whether Easy Writer influenced ideas that were already sort of um, germinating in America, or vice versa, the ideas affected Easy Writer, we have now the motorcycle gone from a place where no self-respecting company would have anything to do with it because it was dirty and it was dangerous and it reflected threats to you to the point where this American icon is being used to sell English, right, American cigarettes, sorry, English cigarettes to Germans. It's that powerful. That's how much an image can change. Another kind of design grows out of a style of racing called road racing. The idea here is to design motorcycles that can go around now asphalt tracks as fast as possible. Certain portions of the track, they go very fast, so aerodynamics are essential. Um, that's why we have these fairings on there. The rider is tucked in, feet under the center of gravity so they can maneuver to go very quickly around a track. This kind of racing influenced um, motorcycle designers. So we have this was called a cafe racer. In fact, in many ways, people like we had the um, people designing choppers in America, kids in England were taking bits and pieces off their motorcycles to make machines that looked like the, the racers, those road racers, and then the Ducati factory copied it in this machine to make a cafe racer. This is one of the machines where, when Alton and I were doing this, it was, it was like one nanosecond. There wasn't even a discussion. Should this be in the show? Yes, it should be in the show. And then on to the next one. There was no reason to discuss this. This is such a beautiful machine. And notice also the, how much the engine plays a, a central role in the look, the design of the machine. And you, we think of Italian machines as being bright red to catch your attention. This didn't need to be bright red. So very pleasing, muted colors in uh, producing this one of the most beautiful motorcycles that has been made. Well, Harley-Davidson recognized this. Willie G. Davidson recognized this cafe racer trend and designed this machine called the XLCR. The CR tells you cafe racer. Same kinds of small fairing, lean um, look like a, a cafe racer. And what Harley-Davidson learned from this is, just like the British had learned to their dismay earlier, people who bought Harley-Davidson's didn't buy Harley-Davidson's that looked like this. So they didn't sell at all. An important design concept that enters into many things. Raymond Lowy, who we consider an American designer, actually did his early training in France, devised the acronym MAYA for most advanced yet acceptable. It's the responsibility of the designer to produce a product that's the most advanced that he can possibly produce, but it still has to be acceptable to the consumer or the consumer won't buy it. If I ask most of you, where is the fuel tank on this motorcycle, you'd obviously point there. Instead, the fuel tank is down low. Gasoline weighs about six pounds per gallon. The worst possible place to put six or eight gallons of gasoline, 50 pounds of gasoline, 50 pounds of weight is up high, way above the center of gravity. You don't want it up there. 
You want it down low. So they put it the best place to put it. But we don't buy motorcycles that don't have gas tanks here. So they made a fake gas tank to give us what we want. They gave us the most advanced motorcycle they could and still made it acceptable. Um, Hans Muth, a designer for BMW, an independent designer for BMW, was asked by Suzuki to design something to update their look and came up with this very radical um, looking machine that influenced a lot of motorcycle design subsequently. It turns out the 1980s, the 1980s to motorcycles are like the 1970s to clothes. They're, it's equivalent of bell bottoms and paisley and stuff. It was a bad time for us for picking motorcycles. There weren't a lot of choices. It made it look harder. So designers were not um, up to their usual standards then. But by the early 90s, they were back on form. And Massimo Tamburini designed what at the time was universally regarded as the most beautiful machine ever made, the Ducati 916. Beautiful curves. The design of the, you can't see it very well here, the canister exhausting the exhaust up high was copied directly from Honda Road Racers at the time. Ducati gets credit for the look, but in fact it came from the road racing circuit. He designed this beautiful Ducati 916. Another designer, Miguel Galuzzi, who also worked for um, Ducati, noted that at the time, lots of times you'd have the latest, greatest sport bike, it would fall over in a parking lot, break the plastic pieces, the owner would call up the, the dealer, say, I you know, crack my fairing, I want to buy a new one, and the dealer said, thank you very much, that'll be $1,500. So what? So people started throwing away the plastic pieces, and they realized that they could get lots of performance. They could buy last year's sport bike from somebody who dropped it and didn't want to spend the money, who wanted to buy the next sport bike, and they could create something in this naked look that became very popular. This was this machine, some people give credit for saving the Ducati company. It sold all sorts of machines during the 90s. Um, and so Miguel Galuzzi, by the way, Miguel Galuzzi, who designed this machine, and um, Willie G. Davidson, who designed that, that Cafe Racer XLCR, and David Robb, who designs motorcycles for BMW. Three very different looking designs. All were trained at Pasadena's Art Center College for Design. So they, but they, um, they were bright people. They were educated. They didn't learn one particular thing. They learned how to extrapolate their knowledge to new things. This is a machine that when I first looked at it, I thought, yeah, we're going to have this in the show, although I don't really like it a whole lot, but it quickly grew on me. Now, I've discovered in giving many tours through the Guggenheim, lots of motorcyclists. Okay, how many of you guys, guys in particular, not the women, how many uh, men in here don't really like the looks of this machine very much? Come on, be honest. Lots of you don't like it. Do you know why you don't like it? I'm going to tell you why you don't like it. Because I've discovered... I would do many tours. Women would look at the machine and go, oh, I kind of like that. And it's a very gender-specific reaction to this. Guys, oh, I don't think so. And one woman, after I had given a tour in Las Vegas, I sat down and she kind of wandered over and said, you know, thank you very much. I really like that Aprilia motorcycle. I said, you know, so do I. Why do you like it, I asked her. And she said, it has a very maternal look. It looks like a pregnant girl. 
gives me warm feelings. Now, what do many, what's the last thing many men want to hear from their girlfriend? Honey, I'm pregnant. And in fact, she was right. That this is why men react badly to this machine. And as soon as she said this to me, I went, you know, I should have seen this before. Now, imagine you're Massimo Tamburini. You designed the Ducati 916 in the early 90s, the most beautiful motorcycle ever in the world. And this is not unlike doing physics. You know, what did you do? Yeah, yeah that's, you did a nice experiment, but that was last week. What did you do this week? Now you're, you're given the task, well, yeah, you know, that was a few years ago, design a better motorcycle. And Massimo Tamburini stepped up to the task, and he designed a motorcycle that's even better looking than the Ducati 916. And that's a tough thing to do. And it's an absolutely beautiful machine that um, at the time when the exhibition opened in, Los, in uh, New York in 1998, was just on the market, and we got the first ones that were produced. One was uh, from King Juan Carlos. That tells me it's time to stop. So thank you for your attention. Thanks, Charlie. It's great. Uh, we can have questions. Charlie will certainly entertain. Yes. Uh, you made a comment earlier, very early in the talk, about the cost of materials, and roughly speaking, we could price motor vehicles by the pound? Yes. For equally mass-produced vehicles, we can't, which is why bicycles are so overpriced, if that's going to be your question. No, it if was you actually... paid $2,000 for a bicycle, you got ripped off. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Um, I paid $2,000 for a motorcycle. Uh, but the price of motorcycles which are even mass-produced motorcycles, I don't think have that weight-to-value ratio to comparable, comparably technologically advanced cars. They appear more expensive. Am no, I wrong it, about that? No, as a matter of fact, they don't. If you compare the price of uh, motorcycles to, say, a Honda NSR, the closest thing you can buy to, to a mass-produced, high-performance, sort of Grand Prix-level kind of performance, they actually are comparable in, in price per pound, and I can show you that. I, I've done those comparisons. You know, within 30% or so. Okay. So, so you're the, what I will say, let me continue on on this theme. That means for the same price, you can either get much more performance from a motorcycle, or you can pay way difference in price and get comparable performance. Let me ask one more question. Why is it that they don't sell small displacement motorcycles in the U.S. anymore? Because we don't buy them. They don't sell them because we don't buy them. If you wanted, if you bought a small displacement motorcycle, they would sell them. The, the manufacturers would be very happy to. Yet, you, know, you, you have a very limited worldview living in New Jersey where there's like a billion people. If you live out in the West, if you go from Tucson to Los Angeles, that's 400 miles, you pass through Phoenix, you pass through one city going 400 miles. Now, do you want a 50cc motorcycle for that? No. And um, in America is also a rich country. What are you going to do with a 50cc motorcycle yeah, um, or a 100cc motorcycle? So people just don't buy them. Manufacturers would be happy to sell them. I don't think it's that simple, but okay. Can I just make one yeah. comment on that? I think it's a very interesting point, and Charles Parker was 
Oh, thank you. Uh, Charlie was uh, exactly right in saying that American people in general don't like small displacement motorcycles. With one exception in the last three years, there's been an exponential growth in the sales of scooters. Yeah, um, and I think that's a very interesting trend. Yeah. It's a very un-American trend, actually. It's a very European trend, but particularly among young people. And actually, um, particularly in uh, the centers for scooter sales are often university towns. And so th I think that's a very interesting thing that's happening in American motorcycles uh, sales. And actually, some of the most beautiful designs, I think, contemporary designs, are scooters. But I was paying attention as I was around Princeton for the last two days. I saw one scooter here. So you're not ahead of the style trend here. But Alton is absolutely right. The, and this is a very much of a style issue. You, um, in the New York Times Sunday section a few weeks ago, there was even, um, there's always this, large color spread on style. Their motor scooters were featured in that. It is a style question. I bet you, I don't want to monopolize this, but I would bet you that my experience mirrors a lot of the people from my generation. I drive a thousand cc old BMW now, but I started on a 90 cc BMW. Thousand cc BMW, not old. Anyway, I started on a 90 cc Honda. And now I have a son who's 21 and wants to start. What does he start on? Yeah, that's a, that's a real problem. But kids are not buying those. No, most kids would like young boys. Again, I said 90% are male. Want a car. No, many of them don't want small vehicles. And they want high-performance ones. Another thing that, that is uniquely American is you can walk into a store, you can be 16 years old, get your driver's license, go across town to a Suzuki store, buy a Suzuki Hayabusa that goes 190 miles an hour, accurate speed, out the door. Is this a responsible thing to do? Um, so your son can buy for $10,000. The least expensive Hyundai costs about $10,000. So there's our price to performance also. Other questions? So one over there, yes. So, so you're uh, mentioning uh, that there's like a period of uh, evolution of motorcycles where there's like dependability was really high. How come the diesel engine like you see in the Royal Enfields in India or the Wankel engines never really took off on large scale? Okay, so the question is about, about reliability and, and issues. The diesel engines give you lots of torque but not very much horsepower, so they just slug along. So they, they just, and they also have to weigh more to contain the 20 to 1 or 25 to 1 compression ratio. So you, you have to put higher quality components in to make a diesel. And back to when uh, diesels were never that reliable 80 years ago when people in America were caring about it. Now we really do care much more about the performance aspects of it. In India, where you might want, you think you might want a diesel engine, it costs more to produce that. The, you have to put significantly higher quality components and and materials in that engine to make it function reliably. And it, it makes no sense, because diesel fuel isn't that much cheaper than regular fuel. And the Wankel had its whole number of other issues with. There's always stories put out, um, the question about, is the US Army looking at diesel motorcycles? There was a turbocharged motorcycle made somewhere in, in um, New Orleans, I think. Jay Leno has one of these things. So they put out a press release that um, the U.S. Army is looking at this because it's the highest performance. The last thing you want, I mean, you want something like, more like a trials bike or a, a dual sport bike. 
if you, you don't want a motorcycle that goes 100 miles an hour straight down a road. So um, the reason why the U.S. Army conceivably could be interested in it is for making the fuel uniform. Any kind of performance, as long as you can use the same fuel, you use the same ammunition, you use the same everything. So that would be a reason to look into it. Performance is not an issue. It's, it's um, maintaining the uniformity of, of the fuel. So you don't have to stock two things. Yes? So where is it going? I actually have a module on the future of motorcycling. And I'll say right now it's to the point where reliability is no longer an issue. Um, back in my day, you had to have access to the spark plugs because the spark plugs fouled and they oiled and you had to replace them. You had to take the carburetor off and clean it out. That's just not an issue anymore. You can hide, in the case of one of my Ducatis, you can hide the battery such that it takes you the better part of a day to take all the fairing off, put a new battery in and put the fairing back on again. So, because you only have to replace the battery every three or four years. What this does is it allows designers whole new degrees of freedom because you don't have to have access to the carburetor because there is no carburetor, it's fuel injection. You don't have access to the spark plugs because they last 50,000 miles. You can think about custom designed motorcycles. You don't have to produce incredibly mass produced motorcycles where you make so many. You can decide, I can make a production run of a thousand motorcycles of a particular design and sell them. Sure, they'll cost more than mass produced. But people will buy them, and they look nice. And so we can see, I think, more custom motorcycles, at least for the Western market, to niche markets, where the total mass production isn't so essential anymore. Huge mass production. Yes? So engine technology. The, um, the two-cycle engine may make a comeback. There's a lot of reasons why a two-cycle engine is... Uh, fewer components, higher performance, but higher emissions. If you could somehow at 10,000 RPM, which actually with micro modern microprocessors, that's not a, uh, an issue anymore, you meter exactly how much air went into your engine, whatever 10,000 RPM turns out to be in milliseconds, a millisecond or so, you, you real-time measure how much air went into the engine, you inject exactly one fourteenth the one of the fuel that went with this, you have perfect combustion. So, and you can have a little bit of oil in there to lubricate the bearings. And so, conceivably, with this direct fuel injection of metering fast enough and injecting so there's no um, excess of fuel, you could bring back the two-cycle engine. That would be a major advantage because anybody who's ridden a two-cycle engine knows how much performance you get for such a small package. And they're less expensive. So, it was in Shanghai. You see two-cycle engines. You see horrible pollution. Um, people everywhere need transportation. And cars are not really the best choice, even if you could afford a car. The streets are too narrow. There are too many people. If you could have low pollution and low cost, what could be better? So I could see things going that direction. Other questions? Yes. Oh, in the back. Uh, 
Uh, the, the comment is, I, I really liked your point about the saddles, but I think that's, a, that's an over-determined feature of motorcycle design because Americans were also noted from the 19th century for their custom of leaning back, whereas Europeans made a great point of sitting up straight. And this has been documented by uh, Kenneth Ames in, uh, in his book, Death in the, in the Drawing Room. Very interesting uh, essay on that. Uh, the question is so about... Your point is Americans slouch and Europeans don't. Well, at slouch, um, slouch is something, uh, yeah, something, something like that, only it wasn't expressed as a slouch. It was really, it was not a matter of posture. It was a matter of the sitting position with the feet very often up on a rail or up on some object. And European observers were always just appalled and amazed to see Americans uh, sitting like that. Um, the second, the, the point that really interests me is about the, uh, something you didn't touch on, motorcycle helmets. Uh, although I saw them at one point in, uh, at various points there. And I've noticed that uh, motorcyclists seem to resist helmets more than a lot of other people involved in risky uh, sports and hobbies. And I wonder if you could uh, comment on that because I, I haven't, I still don't understand just why this is such a, a specific issue in motorcycling. I don't know if I want to comment on that. <laughs> Uh, it, it's a it's a accurate observation that. Okay, let me. Uh, let me excuse me. The gentleman said it was nonsensical. I can give you plenty of newspaper articles about no, campaigns no, against helmets. Let me. Okay, I'm going to comment something different. Florida did not have a helmet law. I mean, sorry, had a helmet law for a number of years. They revoked it about two years ago. So, during the time that they had the helmet law. People were forced to wear helmets, but they wore the minimum possible helmet. Basically, I suspect, uh, that met the, the, the DOT standards as um, sort of a gesture toward the people forcing them to wear helmets. The helmet law is repealed. Meanwhile, the helmet, those helmets have become sort of almost a fashion statement. And you see many people in Florida, not universally at all, but people who you, in other places where there are no helmet laws, would not be wearing helmets. Wearing the helmets is fashion statements. So it's a matter of fashion as well. And I, if anything you should take away from this lecture is logic isn't always the answer to everything. Fashion, emotion, other kinds of appeals strongly determine our behavior. And it, it certainly applies to helmets as well as everything else. Oh, a psychologist is going to tell us. They've just came out with several reports. The, the helmet, a full face helmet, in fact, has become a fashion statement. And you'll see people who ride reasonably fast bikes, all of them have very good helmets. And your, your point about it being a fashion statement not to, write, to wear one is reduced to a bunch of... I know, I know. No, I'm, I was adding to Charlie's comment about them being a fashion statement to not wear one. But in fact, most motorcyclists these days are, listen, their IQs are sufficiently high that they, they know that there's a great deal of damage done without wearing a helmet, and most people do. Okay, so now, Even are there the any non-helmet questions? Enough of the helmet. We take no more helmet questions, because this one, any non-helmet questions? Yes, down here in front. Yes, please. I don't mind the sound. The sound. Yes. Okay, the sound. Now, this is another um, 
Another psychologist taught me this. There, it, the idea is signifiers. If you go home at, tonight and you, maybe you have a nice vase that you like. It, it, that vase speaks to your sense of sight and so you like it. A signifier that speaks to more than one sense, you typically have much stronger emotions, an appeal toward. Now, if you did like motorcycles, um, one of the senses you have is sense of sight. You say, this is a beautiful motorcycle. I like my motorcycle because it's beautiful. Another signifier is the, the sense of, of um, feel, the vibration from it. So that gets you in touch, and you, so you can like it for that reason. Another sense is the sense of sound. It sounds powerful, and we can get into signifiers of power and objects of, of primitive um, tribal belief. And we can get into real anthropology in this, of, of how you, you take on the, the feelings the, the power of the machine that's with you, the, the totems of the machine that's with you. So your machine sounds powerful, therefore you are powerful. People like it, who like the motorcycles like it for that reason. In many cases, people say, well, you know, it's more powerful, it's, it, you hear, it's safer, people hear me coming. If the, but these are all bogus reasons. I don't care, you guys, I'm in my car and, and I'm sensitive to motorcycles, I have my stereo on, if there's a motorcycle at the stoplight, Beside me, I hear it. If it's anywhere else, I don't hear it. So forget this loud pipe saves lives. It doesn't. Um, I'm going to run you over because I don't hear you. So you better be wearing your helmet. Um, so, but there's the antisocial aspect, and people do cause, by these loud pipes, do cause the vast majority of society who don't ride motorcycles ill feelings toward motorcycles. So in this sense, loud pipes um, can you know, kill motorcycling for us. Alton, go ahead. I think that's a very interesting observation or question about the sound. And um, one of the things that's been most fascinating about uh, this whole project has been to see the very clear line that's drawn between American design and European design, or American thinking or European thinking, American fashions and styles, European fashions and styles. And one of them relates to sound. I think Americans are remarkably noise tolerant. They like loud things. Trucks in America are much, much louder than trucks in Europe. Uh, I'm a European, so I, I'm, I don't like loud things. I've grown up not liking loud things, including loud motorcycles, I might say. Um, but it seems to me that Americans are very tolerant of noise, which is surprising in many ways because Americans are very intolerant of pollution generally. And when the one polluter, and I live on the West Side Highway in New York City, the one pollutant that they are tolerant of is noise. I've never understood quite why. Americans, if nothing, are an inconsistent race. <laughs> Other questions? Yes. Do you own motorcycles? And if you do, what's your favorite one? Um, uh, and uh, now I've forgotten the rest. Okay, <laughs> that's a very common question. Do I look like I own a motorcycle? No. I, excuse me, but I have a tie. Do I look like I own a motorcycle? Uh, then, then my follow-up. I, I own seventeen. Oh. So, um, and what what is your favorite motorcycle? If you have one, you may have a couple. Okay. And um, and how did you uh, 
are you an optical sciences professor? Is that, uh, oh, this is going to be the hardest one to answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm professor of optical sciences. How you were drawn or if there's any connection or anything between okay. the two. Okay, so in terms of my favorite motorcycle, and I'm going to give you an honest answer. I love them all. That, but um, often I'll throw this back. If it's a woman, I'll say, are you a mother? Do you have more, and do you have more than one child? Yes. Okay, you have more than one child. Which is your favorite? Okay, wow. but but an honest mother, what if I said an I honest had mother one? will say, I love them equally, but you know Bobby or Jean or something sure. is my favorite. So um, I have different ones that are favorite at different times. I like to go very fast on twisty roads. I like to go you know slow on motorcycles that break down and give a cold different experience. I, I like British motorcycles for that reason. Um, so. Um, <laughs> I like dual sport motorcycles. I can ride on dirt roads. I so, I mean, I really, when you have 17, I mean, I like them all. Right. And, and I, I like a variety of purposes. I don't own any cruisers. I don't like to go, just kind of go slowly down a straight line. Um, that's just, you know, it's, but that's a personal thing. Right. Um, I've never had one, no. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, I haven't tried, I know, heroin either, and I just... <laughs> So, you know, you kind of know you're not going to like it. Well, yeah, okay. And I, I might like it too, yeah. It may be just as addictive. And it just, it, um, I think, you know, I'm old enough that I have a fairly good feeling for what I like and don't like. And I just, you know, I like to go fast, not slow. So I like coffee. I like caffeinated beverages. It, for all these reasons, I don't think I like a cruiser. Okay, so optical science. I've always been a scientist. From the, my earliest age, I remember my, I was given a chemistry set when I was six, seven, eight, I don't know. Um, somehow, my mother, God love her, um, she let me have a motorcycle. I had sulfuric acid, battery acid. Now, how a six or seven year, eight year old gets battery acid, I don't know. And because I, I know I had this because I etched the kitchen, the bathroom sink. I mean, I just, because, you know, I wanted to, more horsepower in that chemistry set. So I know I've been a, had the science urge my whole life. I was given a ride across Des Moines, Iowa, when I was about seven or eight years old, on the back of a Triumph Thunderbird, the kind Marlon Brando had. The reason why I know it was a Triumph Thunderbird was Triumph um, set a land speed record at Bonneville in the Salt Flats, 56 I think it was, and for two years before they introduced a model called the Triumph Bonneville, they put on the Triumph Thunderbird, and I only learned this later, I, I, I trace this back later, they put a decal on the tank that said, World Land Speed Record Holder. Well, I was young enough that I thought, and stupid enough, I thought that I was on the fastest motorcycle in the world. It made that much of an impression on me. And so I was hooked from that age. I, by the time we got across Des Moines, I was a motorcyclist for life. California, in their wisdom at the time I was growing up, when you were 15 and a half, you got a learner's permit, which let you drive a car with a responsible adult. You could ride a motorcycle all by yourself. And there were no helmet laws. So I got a motorcycle when I was 15 and a half. And I planted it helmetless into the side of a car because I was cutting down the right-hand side, merrily passing all this stop traffic on a motorcycle. I can do this. Not realizing somebody could turn in front of me. And a friend of mine who's now president of Miami University of Ohio pointed out, Falco, the mark of an intelligent person is the ability to learn from their mistakes. <laughs> now I have 17 motorcycles. 
I saw the Guggenheim show twice. It was brilliant. And you, you've done a great job of showing us really beautiful motorcycles. What in your mind is the most unathletic, uh, most unappealing or most ill-conceived mass-produced motorcycle that you wouldn't even want parked in front of the Guggenheim? Okay, so it, it turns out I have an answer to that. And um, that I've got this module here. Cruise. On, and there, there are many choices here. I mean, it's not like there's the ugliest. There are, there are many contenders. Notice this ugly weird is what this is called. And let me find... Um, no, not the Nero car. I'll find... Uh, oh, I bet I've got this one located in someplace else. Um, there was... Well, here. No, we don't want that one. Oops, I did other talks. No wonder. I clicked on the wrong one. There we go. Here's the Amazonas. That's um, a bad idea. That's not the ugliest, though. There are uglier ones. There are um, Cushman. Some, that's going to offend somebody. There's uglier ones. Here, the ugliest, sort of, we have to normalize this. The ugliest motorcycle from a design firm known for beautiful motorcycles, so the ratio of ugliness to the impossibility of them doing this, the MV Augusta. Oh, jeez. That probably, um, of the well-known motorcycles, brands, that's a real contender there. Oh, there's an American motorcycle. Um, well, here's my friend Buzz Walneck on the Road Dog. It wasn't mass-produced, though. And I didn't point this out, that in... Motorcyclists do funny things. I'm going to digress now. We've talked about ugly motorcycles. That, like, if the... I have a friend who owns a motorcycle shop, and he has what's called the wall of shame. Now, I carry a pair of vice grips. Actually, it saved Alton once when he broke the um, brake lever, clamped the vice grip on the remainder, and you be very careful, you can clamp it. You could break the gear shift lever, and a well-known cure for this is you clamp your vice grips onto the gear shift lever and get you home. This guy welded the gear shift lever, instead of buying a new one, to the vice grips and clamped it on. <laughs> that a lot of people involved with motorcycling, I think, wouldn't have been admitted to Princeton. Um, here, this guy came in and thought, it's about time to get a new sprocket. So he took this off. Um, like I said, you know, motorcyclists are a whole other story in themselves. Oh, here. This guy irresponsibly rode in on this bike, even though there was clearly at least 50 feet of tread left on it, and at that point said, you know, I think I should buy a new tire. Okay, now that's just kind of semi-stupid. Whoops, didn't mean to do that. We don't want help. We probably do need help, but um, this guy used, decided his brake rotors had worn down. Instead of buying new ones, he cut, probably out of the heel of his shoe, he cut some piece of brake metal, and then using the cheapest, cheesiest zinc-coated screws, which will break 
with no pressure whatsoever. He, he entrusts his life to this. And this got taken off a motorcycle. So those are along the way. Oh, another one. Alton's favorite, since he loves Norton's. That one was not a, a well-conceived idea. And Ducati, the Ducati Indiana, another. Not as bad as that MV Augusta. So I hope that kind of answered your question about ugly motorcycles. Are those still in the works? Those are, those are um, 15 of my 17. <laughs> Other questions? Yes? Uh, I'm just curious why you might think some technology takes off and, and some does. And we saw a lot of examples of uh, single-sided rear swing arms. You saw one example of a... Uh, a center hub steering, and uh, also uh, that German bike that had a single-sided uh, front end. Mm -hmm. Why do some technologies take off and some don't? Is it, is it cost? Is it aesthetics? Sometimes, it, certainly cost and aesthetics come into it. Sometimes they're, they're before their time. The Nira car had hub center steering, gave very low center of gravity, but what people discovered after a while, wear in the linkage became a factor. And so, you, sort of when you turn your handlebar you want the wheel reasonably soon to follow. And it got to be too sloppy. And they hadn't taken that into account. So sometimes um, a, man, a designer can have a good design, and when it gets to the production stage, the person in charge of costing it removes a key component, causes it wear too fast, and it can fall apart for that reason. And then the next designer of another machine can say, this is technologically advanced, but that already has a bad reputation. Everybody knows hub center steering is... is um, is no good, and then nobody will buy it, even though maybe the design has been improved. So we see examples of that as we go through, too. So there, it's a complex mini-factor um, answer to your question, but there are a lot of reasons why the latest technology can fail and not be taken in. You have to take into, society, into consideration uh, design and, and societal wants and style. That's a huge factor. And real quick, you said you like fast motorcycles. How many uh, performance awards, uh, a.k.a. speeding tickets, do you have? <laughs> um, not that many. Not as many as you might think. The other nice thing about living in a state where its low population density is, there's this kind of rule of thumb that if you're more than 20 miles from a donut shop, you're probably okay. And so, and um, you know, knock on wood, so you... you you go the speed limit. With your... Unfortunately, everything here is within 20 miles. Exactly. <laughs> but in Arizona, you can go hundreds of miles without being close to a town. And there are, there are you know, the odds of being caught. Of course, when you are caught here, there's, uh, if you're going over 85 or going more than 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, it's an automatic arrest felony. So if, the, the op if you're impolite, you could end up in jail for that. But you know, usually they kind of understanding. Let's say one last one. Yes. Have you ever actually ridden it? No, I've never ridden a Megola. But another one of these incidents were years ago. Paul Chaikin used to be a professor at UCLA. When I was growing up in Southern California, I went up to Westwood. I was in high school at the time, and I saw one being ridden on the streets of Westwood. And I mean, it was just like. You know, this is like, you see a UFO. If you saw a UFO land here, you'd always remember it. Um, so you see a Magola going down the streets of, of, in front of UCLA, you always remember it. And I would love to ride one. I think it'd be great fun. 
I think we should thank Charlie again. Thank you.